1: me again uh yeah this episode is going to be with simon who is a very interesting guy i met in holland uh met him online actually years ago because uh he owns a seed bank and i was um, growing some of his plants and we got into a conversation about the medicinal use of some of the plants that he had developed some of the strains of marijuana that he had developed and um I was struck by his intelligence and uh, I think uh, he says, I think we talk about it in the, in the conversation that uh, there was a link to sex at dawn. I think it was shortly after sex at dawn was published and uh, there was a link at the bottom in my email signature and he clicked on that and then started asking me about the book. And uh, next time I was in Amsterdam, we got together, you know, have a coffee or something and, and we really hit it off. So Uh, I was just back in Holland recently, as you know, visiting Wim Hof, and uh, I dropped in on Simon as well on that visit, and he invited me out to his place and got to uh, hang out there in this beautiful, beautiful place he lives in where he's got um, birds of prey that he, uh, what do you say, raises, I guess, and hunts with, and he's, I mean, it was a beautiful place. Beautiful place. Just so green and full of life. Chickens and cats walking around the yard. There's an owl. He's got a big cage where he was breeding these little owls. And uh, there's a goat sitting under a tree. And um, normally he's got the hawks out walking around on the the lawn as well. But uh, because they're molting, he had them in their aviaries this time. Anyway, we talk about birds, we talk about uh, weed and his experiences with the cultivation of marijuana, and we also talk about something that I really didn't even know had happened, which is my favorite thing in these podcasts, when in the midst of the conversation, we get into an area that I didn't even know was there to get into, but it turns out it's a pretty big one in this case. Um, A year and a half ago, Simon fell, I think he said about 30 feet from a ladder when he was um, uh, trying to take down a tree that was leaning over one of his aviaries and uh, landed on his back and broke nearly every bone in his torso. And... uh Seemed he was going to die there for close to two weeks. And then he made a miraculous recovery. So we talk about that experience, the recovery, some of his thoughts as to why he recovered so quickly, and the way the medical establishment dealt with uh, the evidence right in front of their faces, or, or more accurately, really didn't, chose not to deal with it. Um, so that's a it's a very interesting conversation and I'm glad you're here for it. Glad you're joining us, tribe. That's what I think of you now. I think of you as a tribe. Like we're this big tribe and every once in a while when we're sitting around the fire, somebody asks me to tell a story. That's that's my job. I'm the storyteller or the or the conversation holder or whatever it is. But I'm very happy to be part of the tribe, very happy to be sitting around this table. Or this fire, or whatever it is we're sitting around with you. News. I am about to leave Spain again. Another one of these fucking continental shifts is about to happen. Um, I'm headed back to LA for the foreseeable future. Cassie is headed to Southern Africa to pursue some of um, some things that she's got to work out down there with family and um and she's working on her memoirs, as some of you who are long term listeners will remember and back in episode one hundred, we talked about how um I'd been encouraging her to to write a book about her years in Mozambique, where she was working as a doctor in the in the field, a field doctor, I guess you call it um just basically driving from village to village in a pickup truck and treating. Everything uh, that she encountered, which, as you can imagine, was ran the gamut of things that a a physician can be asked to to deal with. And uh, so she's going to go down there and spend the winter investigating, you know, sort of revisiting some of the places she was when she was younger, talking to some people and um, yeah, sort of partly personal stuff and and a lot of it hopefully will work its way into her book. So, we're all looking forward to that. Those if you're one of those people who writes to me regularly asking when the shrimp parade will return or if the shrimp parade will return, I hope it'll return soon because I'm returning to LA. And the main impediment to the continuation of the shrimp parade is that I just wasn't around and When I was around, it was only for a few days, and it's very hard to schedule a meeting with um, Joe Rogan, Duncan Trussell, and me all together when, you know, I'm giving them a week's notice and saying, hey, I'm going to be there Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. And they're like, yeah, dude, I'm on tour, and I'm recording this, and I got that. They're both very busy guys. So... Uh, Now that I'll be based in L.A. again for a while, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get that together. So if you don't know what the Shrimp Parade is, I guess you can Google it and you'll find it. Or you can just look on my site, chrisryanphd.com, and you'll see under podcast there's a a little thing to Shrimp Parade, which is just Duncan Trussell, uh, Joe Rogan, and me together shooting the shit. And um, uh, a lot of people seem to think that that's a particularly interesting combination i certainly enjoy it they seem to enjoy it and joe has said that those are consistently his most downloaded episodes so i guess the audience enjoys it as well i don't know the whole thing's a mystery to me i mean i know why they're why they're enjoyable i'm not sure what i add to the proceedings but whatever it is i'm glad to throw it in there what else can I tell you? I'm flying to L.A. That's that's the big news. I'll be based probably in Topanga Canyon, which is a, sort of a hippie haven north of Los Angeles. It's a beautiful area, national parks, state parks. I'm not sure what kind of parks they are, but there's a lot of parkland. Um, and it's only about half an hour from the mess of Los Angeles. If there's no traffic, if there is traffic, you know, it could take you six, seven days to get there. I, there's a show I watch sometimes, uh, Ray Donovan. It's a pretty good show, you know, sort of a typical good guy who's also a bad guy, you know, a la The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or whatever. Um, but this season's particularly well done. They're they're dealing with um, some pretty... Contentious themes. There's a, a breast cancer theme running through the season. The whole show is built around the fact that he's damaged because he was sexually abused by a priest when he was a boy. There's some surprisingly subtle and intelligent um, material being being conveyed through the writing in the show. But the one thing that always cracks me up. It takes place in L.A. Obviously, and his family lives up in Malibu, I think, and he has a gym his brother's a boxer and he has a gym downtown LA and you know he's always moving around in his I don't know if he's a Lexus or what it is he has some fancy car but it's hilarious because he'll be downtown LA and his wife will call and there's some crisis you know I'll be right there and then you see like 10 minutes later he drives into the driveway (laughs) anyone who's ever spent any time in Los Angeles knows that that is you know you'd probably get to to Vegas faster than you get to Malibu uh from downtown LA. So, yeah, that's a fiction. But for those of you who don't live there, yeah, who knows. LA's I've got a strange relationship with that town as I've talked about on the podcast before. But recently I have a friend in Paris and we were talking about uh you know, Paris and he came up with the old line, you know, everything. I love Paris, everything's great about Paris except the people who live there. It occurred to me my feelings about LA are the opposite. Everything sucks about LA except the people who live there. So uh, I'm going to try to um, ignore the traffic and the shitty air and the, um, the, the the aggressive way people drive and the media, the overwhelming presence of media, and the uh, you know vegan yoga studios and the rest of the inane American bullshit and focus on the wonderful people I know who live there and who many of you know at this point, because I have them on the podcast. I'm thinking of Tal Ruspoli. I'm thinking of Chris James, uh, Todd Strauss, Schulson, obviously Duncan and Joe, Neil Strauss. There's so many people, Daniele Bolelli, so many people there that I really love and love hanging out with and love meeting their friends and, you know, Dan Harmon. I don't think I've had him on the podcast, but I've been on his. So anyway, it'll be fun to have a chance to cultivate and, um, and deepen those relationships, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. I don't talk a lot on the podcast about personal stuff by that. I mean, stuff that involves other people. I'm happy to talk about my own idiocies and, humiliations and so on, but, uh, I try to keep other people out of it. Um, because everyone deserves a private life, even people who know me. Um, but one of the reasons I'm, I'm headed back to LA is family issues. My, my, there's some health issues and my, my father particularly. Um, so if there are interruptions in the podcast, um, you know, I'm dealing with stuff and, or I'm just in, in a mental state where I, don't feel comfortable chatting. I don't, uh, I don't have the, the courage, honestly, of Duncan Trussell. If you listen to his podcast, you may have heard the episodes where he, um, talks with his mother who was, uh, I, I believe the first episode was shortly after she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And then he did another episode with her, um, I think just a week or so before she died and yeah, I don't know. You might be disappointed to hear this, but I, not only do I not have, I don't know if courage is the right word or I'm not sure what it is. I admire the hell out of him for doing that. And obviously his mother was down for it. So that's another issue. Um, in my case, I think my family, at least my parents, are more, they wouldn't be up for that, I don't think. And um, and honestly, uh, neither would I. So anyway, that's as much as I'm going to say about this probably. Um, I just wanted to say something because there may be interruptions or irregularities in, in the way this podcast gets gets put out but i'll try to keep it to uh you know the typical four or five episodes a month that i've been doing uh certainly out of respect for those of you who support it on patreon you know you're paying for a product and i will keep producing the product come what may there may just be some irregularities um so i think i'll be doing one more i'll probably do a. I was thinking of doing another Toma episode. It's been a while since I've done one of those. So I think I'll do one of those in a couple of days. Uh, I'll post that from Spain, and then the next time you hear from me, I'll be in sunny Los Angeles. Yeah. Strange. Anyway, uh, Simon, he doesn't want me to use his last name because he's a low-key guy, and he doesn't necessarily want his neighbors uh, up, up in his business which I certainly understand, uh Holland is the kind of place where you know people are monitoring one another quite closely, so I think he's smart to keep it on the down low. But this is a wonderful conversation. He's a wonderful guy, and uh I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to play you out with a song called "Fly" appropriately by a musician by the name of Ilhan Ersahin. he's uh Swedish. Uh, Turkish. Like his mother was Swedish. His father's Turkish. He was raised in Stockholm. And I believe this is from the Istanbul sessions. You can learn more about him at his his website, İlhan I L H A N Ersahin E R S A H I N dot net. A uh, lot of information about him. He's based in New York, seems to be doing a lot of work there. He's a saxophonist, he's a composer, he owns a club, he, I guess he's a DJ, a curator, I don't know, he does all sorts of stuff. So check him out, especially if you live in New York, and um, you know, go see him. Yeah, I would, if I were living in New York. Hell yeah. Anyway, this is Fly by Ilhan Gersingh. i e in Holland everything is green there are chickens you're going to hear the roosters crowing there's a goat over there there's a little owl within about uh, three meters of us there's a cat I feel like I'm in the Garden of Eden here there are flowers everywhere there's a, a canal right behind us it's beautiful here this is a little piece of paradise and I'm with Simon thank you Chris I appreciate that because I feel more or less the same way yeah, well, about this place, yeah. it's great. You've, and I don't know what it was like when you moved in here, but it's beautiful. It's very now. much like
2: this because I was looking for a place to live, uh, living in Amsterdam. I wanted to leave the city, and it took me about uh, a year or so, or maybe two years, to actually find a place. And uh, when I <clears throat> when I came to this house, actually. We were looking for. Uh, I was with my wife at the time, and we were looking for uh, a house. And then we came by this place, and there was a big sign in the, in the, outside on the on the road, which says "For Sale." And we said, "Hey, is this the place we're looking for? It looks great. Uh, oh, a lot of green." It was not the place, hmm. and it was another address. And then we looked at, on it specifically on the place, and it was yeah too expensive. to was too much money for it. And then about uh, three months later or so. They're constantly looking on the internet with, with, within the boundaries you gave uh, for new new places. And then there was a new house, and I thought, hey, that sort of looks familiar. was this place. They lowered the price. They yeah, lowered the price <coughs> quite a bit because it was already for sale for two years or yeah. so. Yeah. And I said, hey, that was the place we saw. And said, Come on, let's check it out. And I remember we came here and we walked uh, with the owner, I think. We walked just around through the forest, and we call that patch of trees the forest. And I thought, yes, this is it, this is it. And I didn't even see the house yet at the time.
1: (laughs) It's just the property. Yeah, just the property. And I thought, oh
2: man, this is great.
1: Yeah. And
2: the owner was a guy who also liked the wildlife. And and he was like, yeah, you know, uh, hobby falcon bred here the last year. And, you know, stories like that. And I thought, man, this is the place. This is completely outrageous.
1: And you were already into falcon. Is it falcons that you're into? Yeah. Okay. Birds
2: of prey, you could say.
1: Right. I, I, you know, falconry is with birds. You know. Yeah. it with birds it applies of to to yeah. other birds, not only to falcons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you were already into them. So you were looking for a place where you'd have some space and uh, fly my birds, be able to fly my birds. So you around. fly them from right here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Not right now, as I will tell you, but
2: because I don't know if I told you, but I had a nasty accident about a year ago. In, uh,
1: I think you mentioned in an email yeah. something about that, yeah. Could be. That, that is the
2: reason why you also don't see them now on the lawn, because normally they would sit on the lawn here. Well, this is actually the time they are molting their feathers, so they're in aviaries. Yeah. They do it in aviaries, that's more safe. For the, so uh, what, what was the accident? I, I dropped from a tree. I can show you the tree later on. I mm. was cutting, uh, you know, part of a tree yeah. on a ladder, standing on a ladder, which is I, which I never done before, because you usually... Well, I usually cut the tree at the bottom, and then it falls down, yeah. and you and cut you it take up, the chop it up, yeah. and stuff. But this tree was uh, sort of uh, growing, not straight up, but it was leaning, and under it, sort of, were sort of fruit trees. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, there's no, there's no way I, I would always fall on the fruit trees. Right. And then uh, it was bothering me for a year or two, and then I thought, you know what? I cut them as high as I can. I cut the the, the top part off, and it will just. Uh, tilt over and fall down and not hit the, the fruit trees that's what i did and that part of the plan worked except when it started to you know to bend, to, to crack and you know it started to fall the top part um, it started to act like a joint the, the part where I was sawing it, and it sort of swerved, it, it sort of wiped me off the ladder, basically. Oh. You know, so I was, I was on the 10 meter high ladder, bit the thing, and it was, oh. so when I, f- I fell on my back, oh. and I broke almost all the bones in my body. Oh. It was really bad. What? Right yeah, man, <laughs> it was really bad. I was A year ago? Uh, a year and a half ago about, it was January last year. And
1: I, yeah. I wouldn't have known anything no. happened to you. You move naturally, you don't seem to yep. be in great pain.
2: No, no, I'm not in, in pain or anything. Oh and I, I've, I've uh, sort of remarkable recovery or something. Yeah. Because uh, my, my limbs, my, uh, my arms and legs were not broken, but of my body, I had uh, two vertebrae broken. And all practically of all my vertebrae, all the, how do you call it? The protrusions, which are the, where all the oh, ligaments are, or right,
1: the right, yeah.
2: muscles are attached to. They were almost they, all broken off. Oh man. And yeah, some ribs and some, uh, how do you call it? The, the, the, the, the skull, clavicles, the, sho- the shoulders. Yeah, the yeah, shoulder plate the, there and yeah, the my hips and bones and stuff and yeah, I, I was uh, incredible. Oh.
1: Yeah. Were you? Did people hear it happen? Well, I, I always did it. Uh, I always
2: do it together with a friend, anyway. <coughs> so he was there when it happened, and right. he immediately called. Uh, a helicopter landed here and stuff. Really? And, and Luckily, he didn't
1: try to move you.
2: Yeah. Well, he moved my head a little bit because at first he he said he thought I was dead because I was lying with my eyes open and just you know looking into nothing, unconscious. You were unconscious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. from the impact
2: from the impact yeah yeah i was i was incredibly lucky because i fell sort of on a muddy spot yeah but there was no branches or nothing and it's like impossible to find the spot if you look around you like there's trees everywhere my aviaries were are there closest uh, a table for beehives there and and i've just picked the spot where there was nothing just a muddy spot so it sort of broke my and it was like a, yeah i just had a sort of a, an image of the sheer impact I broke all the bones, but uh, yeah, if I would have fallen on a, on a branch or something, it would have been much worse. Yeah, much worse. There were, like two vertebrae were, much, m-
1: were more or less shattered. And no, no um, internal organ damage. Like? Yeah, my lungs and one lung is still smaller. Uh, and uh, but that was that was the
2: main thing, I think. Not, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's a very interesting experience to have, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but still sort of feels, you don't notice it,
2: but my life changed because I cannot lift heavy stuff anymore and things, you know, and, uh, yeah, bodily, I notice the difference, let's put it that way, Yeah, maybe you don't see it, but. uh,
1: How how old are you? I'm now uh, 55. Yeah, so we're virtually the same age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at this age, you start to notice differences anyway. Yeah you know yeah yeah (laughs) i don't like i don't like lifting heavy things anyhow yeah yeah. Yeah. you have a much better excuse than i do i'm just lazy (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. wow that's incredible man yeah yeah Yeah, and it is also according to the doctors i couldn't believe i
2: have to say which is maybe an interesting thing to mention but when i was in hospital i made
1: sure uh, that i got a lot of uh, cbd i was going to ask about that Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so you were vaping or how did you No, i i, it? I uh, made
2: sure people brought it to me uh, with a, you know it was like a concentrate mm-hmm. in a syringe and it was like i just ate about uh, the size of a rice grain oh like rick the, simpson oil kind of stuff yeah but then with the cbd level. but high CBD. high cbd not the H but the cbd right yeah right and within five weeks my bones were actually healed and uh that is really remarkably quickly,
1: apparently. Did you, you know? did the doctors know you were doing this? Yeah, I told them. And and,
2: and but to my amazement it was not one doctor who knew anything about CBD, cannabis, whatever. Not even the the lung doctors. Yeah. Nobody, not one of them. Yeah. So I was giving lectures to them it's all incredible. the time in yeah. hospital.
1: Were they open to hearing it? Um yeah, they sort of like
2: uh well, maybe because well you know you're a patient and you talk about and they just let you talk or something right you know? but right. it's not it's not that I like really and tell me more right or, because i i remember the lung doctor i said well, i can you know i can send you stuff and uh he gave me an email and i tried to send him stuff later but it sort of bounced and so maybe i don't know maybe uh well maybe i, d- I didn't take the email right or something i don't know but
1: yeah, it's funny, even in light of your miraculous recovery, they're still not yeah. interested in, yeah. you know, I've, I've taught in medical schools and, and I've, you know, tried to talk to, well, you know, my wife's a doctor, right? Yeah. And we have yeah. lots of friends who are doctors. Yeah. Yeah and uh yeah it's it's amazing how uh difficult it is to introduce new information to them yeah (laughs) you know because they're so educated you would think they would just be Yeah, that
2: that's something because paul's uh, we just met my stepson paul his wife is a doctor too and uh she's just well she's almost a doctor i should say she's doing her last uh uh, system thing, and uh, but she said there is absolutely not a word dedicated to the cannabinoid system. To yeah. It, so n- not one of the regularly educated doctors know anything about it at all. They never heard anything about it in their education. So as yeah. far as they're concerned, it's all bullshit. Probably. Yeah. You
1: know? Well, and yeah. you can understand, right? The DEA still classifies marijuana as Schedule One. Yeah. No um, medical yeah. use. Give yeah. me a fucking yeah. break. How is it? But how can they get away? How can they, there's no Nobody's going to judge on
2: whatever they say, but I mean, how can I get away with it, yeah. but just stating that, you know?
1: Well, it's, you know, I, I, I've said this before on the podcast and, and in my books, that we're at this moment where, uh, it's a very interesting historical moment, because virtually every institution has lost all credibility. You know, we're at this pivotal moment in history, where yeah, even yeah, 10 or 15 yeah. years ago people still believed a lot of the government findings on nutrition for example or you know um, the modern medicine was doubling the human lifespan and the you know the Wall Street was a good place to invest your money because they were conservative and the you know the priests were helping children and the homeless and, and then suddenly in the last 10 or 15 years everything has just imploded yeah, you know yeah, the priests true. are child molesters the, the yeah. Wall Street is you know a casino, yeah. uh, you yeah. know the the military, the wars. No one even knows what wars are about anymore, but yeah. they keep going. Yeah. It's just yeah. every institution has collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. And just yesterday, I read there's a, a new um, a new expose showing that in the 1960s, uh, sugar companies funded research that. Uh, seemed to conclude that fat was responsible for heart disease and hypertension and all these things when they knew it was sugar. And so they just corrupted the the system. The, The research system is ridiculous in medicine. It's either corrupted by medicine, or I mean by money, or it's corrupted by the process in which when you get no result, you don't publish. Right. Yeah. So, if there are yeah. twenty studies saying, uh, "Let's look at uh, you know how dangerous, you know whatever MDMA is," to take an example, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and nineteen of them say, "Well, we couldn't find any danger at all," and one finds some weird chromosomal thing, that's the one that gets published. The others are, just disappear; they yeah. never yeah. happened. Yeah. That's, and the same n- that's not, not the science. is true If
2: if if they do ten uh, uh, experiments and one of them shows a mild sort of effect Like a beneficial effect for something. Tylenol. Yeah.
1: That's the you know, it's a new medicine for that. Exactly. and that's actually more pernicious and dangerous because you end up with this false sense that you know, chemotherapy, this new high very expensive chemotherapy is going to save your life. When ninety percent of the research shows it won't do anything except make you sick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Well right, so I should mention the the the reason you and I actually met each other was through cannabis. so it's not a coincidence so. that we're talking about yeah. no. <laughs> cannabis. No. So you, uh, how did we meet? Actually, I guess I was buying seeds from you, and I mentioned um, you. Br- you wrote me an email about uh, asking me about the Cali Mist,
2: and I think
1: that... yeah. I mentioned this- that my wife was interested in it for pain control, yeah. and yeah. that she was yeah. a doctor. And then yeah. you were like, "Oh, interesting, yeah. a doctor, and how yeah. she?" And yeah. then we no, do- no.
2: I remember at the bottom of your email. There was uh, You uh, You wrote something about this book that ah. just, uh, just came out or
1: something. Ah, okay.
2: And I said, hey, that's really interesting, this book thing. And I said, uh, why don't we do a swap? You know, if,
1: uh, I sent you some seeds for the book. Ah, right. That, that's, that's how it started. <laughs> that's a good deal for me. Yeah. Huh? That's the most money I've ever gotten yeah. for a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've been working with marijuana for how long?
2: About, uh, uh, well... Let's, well, I have, My company is now about 16 or 17 years old. I'm not very good with numbers. It started in, uh, yeah, in 94. I founded the company in 94.
1: And the Serious Seeds. The Serious Seeds, right. Yep. And did you develop these strains or like Kalimist, yep. uh, what, uh, AK-47? AK-47, Chronic, uh, White Russian. Bubblegum, yeah, these are all very famous well known strains yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. you developed them yourself with I developed them
2: myself, yes, but of course, like in the case of bubble gum, I got uh, material which was already developed quite far before I got the material I right. just made uh, I got some I got some clones I remember from uh, somebody from America, and they were quite diverse at that time, and I sort of you know selected and it in one direction right. and there was another company who had this, uh, access to the same clones and they developed it in, in a slightly other direction right. but uh for instance but the other things yeah i sort of uh, developed but yeah you you have you've have, uh, there, there was uh, you have access to certain material at the time and that's where you work with so you're always standing on the shoulders of somebody else you could say sure. it was not uh so that uh, <coughs> you know you um, some companies, uh, there's a lot of companies out there who tell bullshit stories, of course, and they're like, Yeah, I went to the dark uh, forests of Africa and I, you know, uh, <laughs> was dealing yeah. with pygmies there or right. whatever. They got f- plants and then they created this, this
1: beautiful strain. That is all bullshit, usually. Yeah. I met these two <laughs> guys in Nepal a long time ago. Uh, when was I in Nepal? Like, mm, must have been 87 or something like that. I was in Pokhara. Have you been to Nepal? No, no, no. no. So I was in this cafe in Pokhara and these two guys were in there, these two American guys, and they were... They came and sat at my table and we were talking and they were freezing. (laughs) They didn't have jackets and it was like February in Nepal. And uh, their story was the one guy was a plant geneticist at uh, Berkeley. Yeah, okay. Near San Francisco, yeah, yeah, yeah. a PhD, you know, super smart, educated guy, he, and his friend. They'd known each other since childhood, and his friend was um, a, a backhoe operator, you know, bulldozers. Yeah, yeah. And so the two of them had his friend took the they took the backhoe up into the mountain somewhere, and his friend cut a road into somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And they had a plantation of, of weed. Now this was still like that really... The What? No, they, they built it. Oh, they built yeah, it. Yeah, oh, they, okay. they made yeah. it. And so they were growing weed there commercially, illegally, but yeah, commercially, yeah. right? And I think they were the ones who told me they had this system. So they, they were growing in a place where there was no water. Yeah. Because if there's water, then people go there and they're hiking and then they find your plants and, you know, harvest time, yeah. you've lost yeah. everything. So uh, they, they found a place where there's no water, but there's good Southern exposure. And what they did was they took up water beds, you know, the the plastic bag of a water bed. Right, right, right. And they went up there in the rainy season and they set up a big tarp between trees that would collect the water and drain it all into the water beds. And they placed the water beds in areas just up the hill from where they were going to to grow right so they'd fill up these huge water beds with water in the rainy season then they closed them off then they had all their plants and they set up a drip system that where the water came out of the water bed and it lasted through the season till harvest It was a really good system Great idea yeah yeah anyway so they were in nepal you reminded me with these stories because they were in nepal because i remember they said they wanted to find the i think they called it the secret valley I was like, what, what secret valley? They're like, well, you know, we just figure there's got to be a secret valley. There's got to be a place where, you know, up here in the Himalayas where they were looking for bushy, fast growing uh, uh, indica plant that they could then integrate into their, you know. So they were actually on that kind of a mission. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they they were silly because they'd like flown to Nepal without jackets in the middle of winter <laughs> Or sleeping bags or anything. So they were looking around like where can we buy sleeping bags? It's crazy Yeah, yeah, I don't know if they ever made it to the secret valley or if they just hung out <laughs> in poker and got high but <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe it was just planned, uh, plans at plants, you know like yeah, yeah, but not
1: very well prepared No yeah. they. Um, So, so what got you into all this? How did, how did it all start? Um, Were you just, uh, were you a hippie?
2: No, no. The thing is, I I never smoked anything when I was younger and um, uh, no tobacco at least, and because no tobacco, also nothing else, because that sort of goes together. In in the Netherlands, it is uh, the, the culture here, you mix weed yeah. wit or, or hash with tobacco and that's how you smoke it so if you don't smoke tobacco it's a no-brain you, you don't smoke
1: anything yeah. else and also like people in Holland don't smoke a lot of weed it's you know I think people from outside have this idea that oh in Holland everyone's getting high actually I don't think a lot of young people smoke that much here no or at least not before not no the, years ago
2: no the thing is uh, well I think I, if, you know, talking about Holland, there is, uh, we, have, yeah, we have we have this development going on, let's say, I think 40 years ago we started the coffee shop system, that's yeah. really 40 years ago, that's a long time ago, <coughs> and uh, or just over 40 years ago, um, and uh, then Holland was sort of, uh, yeah, on the forefront of the whole cannabis movement, you could say, uh, as the first country in the world starting uh, uh, in the western world at least starting uh, a place where you can but you could I and mean, you still can buy some weed for personal use yeah. and for recreational use and uh, and it was uh, it uh, in a sort of allowance system allowance it so it, it is allowed to buy weed it is allowed to use it in your house on the street wherever doesn't matter and uh, you're not arrested by the police or anything yeah. that is still till this day although, uh, although the, the laws are more strict but by now, the rest of the world has overtaken the Netherlands. You could say.
1: Well, I was surprised yeah. when yeah. you're talking about the doctors. Yeah. I would have thought that the Netherlands would have a medical marijuana policy and, and sort of be interested in research and all this. But yeah. it sounds like they're not. Since doctors are not educated in, they don't.
2: You know, the discovery of the cannabinoid system is relatively new, and. But yeah, and you would think that new knowledge would be incorporated into uh, into. Uh, you
1: notice every bird that flies yep. over. I've noticed. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you're very <laughs> you're very keyed into what's happening in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, The cannabinoid system, for people who don't know what Simon's talking about, you're talking about uh, uh, a system within the body where there are receptors that uh, the cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, exist within the body. So when we ingest something with THC, CBD, these things, the body's prepared for them. The body's waiting for them because it's already... They're, these chemicals are already in our bodies.
2: Well, the, the, the re, uh, the, you know, in Israel, at some moment, they uh, they found THC, the molecule, when it was already highly illegal and stuff. Because, but nobody knew what it did in the body. Which so it is a bit stupid to to make it a, an illegal substance while you not even know what's going on. Why, yeah. why it would be illegal, Right. anyway? Uh, but some guys there, um, um, you know, there, so, well, there must be. The reason why this relatively small plant substance has such an effect in your body, yeah. there must be reason for that. Uh, after they found THC, this, this, uh, they thought there must be uh, a molecule in the human body which is like, looks like THC, but your body mistakes THC for the. The, the the molecule which we have, naturally, otherwise, you know, uh, they couldn't explain why the effect was there. So they started f- looking for it and they found they found a molecule, or they found a group of molecules which are like the plant cannabinoids, and they are called endocannabinoids. Eh? We reproduce them in our body and they're part of the, the immune system. This, and you could say this whole cannabinoid system in our body. And they, uh, yeah, they do all sorts of things. The whole immune system is a complicated matter anyway, yeah. and this is a part of the immune system. And they also know by now, although this is all fairly new knowledge, and they're still trying to unravel what exactly is going on and how does it work and you know what is responsible for what and what is the result if you don't have enough of those endocannabinoids if you don't produce you. Um, uh, enough of them yourself. It seems that all uh, there's a wide array of diseases which are the result if you have not enough endocannabinoids in your body. You could you should think of things like Roma, MS, uh, multiple sclerosis, all that. These are all things which, yeah, uh, your own immune system attacks your body. Autoimmune it's, diseases, yeah, right. autoimmune diseases. Right. They are m- many of them have to do with. Uh, a shortage of anacannabinoids and
1: right so that's why uh, rick simpson oil and things like this have been associated with miraculous recoveries from uh, all sorts of things cancers and you
2: could say uh, if, if you suppress your immune system that uh, talk about cancer because there's so many diseases which are which have to do with the immune system and you could say uh, that cancer is one of them because if you, uh, for some reason, like you, ha- you get an, uh, an an organ from a donor or something, and they suppress your immune system, yeah. they see that uh, you will that small uh, tumors will start to grow in your body. So your, your normal immune system uh, kills those tumors, yeah. you know, eradicates them. And if you if you suppress your immune system totally, that is one of the results. And they will disappear again if your immune system is active. But a real tumor sort of breaks through your immune system and the THE of Rick Simpson it seems to be so that well it has been proven that THE and, and CBD uh, they have an effect on tumor they sort of can restore the original uh, uh, um, working that uh, you know normally a, a tumor cell when it's when a, a cell, divides constantly, and when something goes wrong in, within the cell, there's a whole chain of things which which need to go wrong. But if they are reached, if this chain is fulfilled, then uh, a cell turns into a cancer cell. And uh, normally, a cell which goes uh, haywire, uh, they get a message to kill, it, to destroy itself. Right. And that, that signal or that uh, that's how you say that mechanism that mechanism exactly that mechanism doesn't work in a tumor in a real tumor cell that's sort of overruled and thc and cbd especially when they're together they can restore that yeah there is sort of a flies there's a fly here and they uh, it bites they yeah exactly they bite you that is uh, that is a stable fly it's called yeah
1: I think yeah. in English yeah. we call them horseflies. No, horseflies are a bit bigger. Ah, okay. But they look exactly like
2: a housefly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was surprised. Yeah. I I yeah. looked at it and I thought, yeah. oh, that's yeah. nothing. And then I felt it. Yeah, yep, yeah. Um Yeah, it's funny how cancer you know dying from cancer is actually dying from something that refuses to die yeah it's dying from the absence of natural death yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, there's a word for it in in the cell i can't remember what the word is when the apoptosis apoptosis exactly yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. thank you yeah and and thc and cbd they they restore the the the mechanism of apoptosis again yeah and they which means they induce the cell to kill itself to destroy itself yeah and uh, uh yeah and so by giving in, in copious amounts of THC, that's the Rick Simpson method, um, the, you know, it seems to be so, but the thing is, there is no being, it's, not, it's not scientifically proven that this is the case, because especially in America, science don't get any uh, yeah. allowance to, to do any research in that area.
1: Do you know Rick Doblin and MAPS? Yeah. yeah, I don't
2: know him personally, but I...
1: Yeah, I, he's a friend of mine. I've had him okay. on the podcast. Okay. And a lot of yeah. the people who are doing the research that they fund, I've had on the podcast as well. Yeah, It's amazing. Yeah. It's so hard. He's been swimming up that river for so long, yeah. but he's actually yeah, he's, making progress yeah. now. It's, it's fantastic. I, uh, I got some Rick Simpson oil for my uncle, who has cancer. And uh, he, he's never smoked marijuana, you know, was very unfamiliar with the whole thing, but he tried it. And um, and his numbers got better. His laboratory results got significantly better, and then he stopped because he was just too stoned. Like he couldn't function, you know. And uh, you know, and the dosage you're trying to get to with that stuff is massive.
2: Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, And you know, he was taking just the tiniest little uh, drop, and he'd be out all day, you know. And he said, "Look, you know, honestly." Because the kind of cancer he has, it doesn't affect him. He's fine, but he could die at any point. And um, but he's you know he's ca- he's he's awake. He's you know happy. He's physically he's okay. And he's like you know what? I'd rather like be able to live for six months and then die than just be stoned for five years. You know. So yeah,
2: but that's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, I think I'd rather be stoned for five years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Personally. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing
2: is, I, I immediately thought that, uh, you know, with the Rick Simpson soil, that is about uh, pumping a lot of THC in your blood. But if you, if you uh, combine it with CBD, you're much less stoned yeah. than uh, with only THC.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, you also say to people who are in the same shoes as your uncle, uh, like, uh, okay, in, in, try to take as much as you can at nighttime, um, uh, of the THC, uh, especially THC, a lot when you sleep anyway. But yeah. in the daytime, take as much as you can to feel okay about it. You know, right. so not call, not 24 hours seven be so high.
1: Right, because
2: right. not not everybody likes that.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah. so yeah you have to prepare when you're young getting high so that then when you're <laughs> old you'll be in better condition it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a training yeah. I'm not getting high mom I'm training yeah. Yeah. yeah that was not advice for anyone under 18 <laughs> by the way <laughs> that's right <laughs> or 21 right. or whatever the hell the rule is yeah yeah, oh, yeah
2: the... but the thing is okay I, it makes me pop back to your initial question yeah. so I didn't smoke anything right right when I uh, was younger although when when I am still Student parties and stuff. When people smoking uh, hash uh, because there was no weed in the Netherlands at that time, people smoking hash around you. I always liked the smell, uh, the the the scent, you know. I the thought,
1: smell oh, okay. of hash is yeah. one yeah. of the best smells yeah. in the world. Yeah. yeah, it's right up there with coffee. I think there's yeah. that fermented richness to yeah. it.
2: and I thought yeah. so ever, you know. And I thought, hey, what? you know, like ah, oh, there's a nice sweet smell. Sniffing it up. Yeah, but it never you know, came to mind to ever trying it because, yeah, you have to smoke tobacco and I didn't like the idea, never, you know, uh, of course, your lungs can also, you have to learn to smoke tobacco. Your lungs can't take tobacco in right away. And tobacco makes
1: you dizzy and nauseated. It's horrible shit. Everything about tobacco is bad. Yeah. Well, everything about... Smells good before they burn it. Um, You know, like cured tobacco can smell nice. Yeah,
2: I can relate to that, yeah, but yeah.
1: But yeah, everything, as a drug, it's just the dumbest, like right there with cocaine, like the two dumbest drugs ever. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so. So, um. So what happened? You smelled it, you liked the smell, and then someone said, hey, you could smoke it in a pipe.
2: No, no, yeah, that that could, that could have been uh, happening, that could have happened, but it didn't, and, uh for total other reasons like the, the birds of prey we already talked about uh, because uh, that was always a passion of mine from my youth and uh, i wanted to become a falconer and uh, uh, when i was about 13 or so i was sure i wanted to become a falconer. really yeah yeah and i did everything i could to you know read about it learn about it and stuff and uh, when i was 18 i tried to do a, go through an education to become one next to i was still studying at that time but um, in the Netherlands it's very strict because we have such a small country and it's so densely populated yeah. things like that is really not made easy to uh, so uh, and they made it particularly difficult by uh, installing um, uh, a waiting list so there were like about 100 falconers people with a license to do that and uh, and they were not going to give out any more of those licenses so I was at the waiting list and uh, I had to wait yeah um, I don't know how long till enough people would have died to for me to become one <laughs> and uh, and then uh, I was uh, I, I think it was 25 at the time I was almost, I always finished my study and I thought uh, uh, you know what uh, I, I go to, an to another country where you can just, you know, where it would be very easy to become a falconer. But I spoke English, that was one of the things, because I spoke English at the time. And um, uh, so I went to Africa to, uh, to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, yeah, yeah. I was yeah.
1: just there a couple oh, yeah. months ago, yeah.
2: Okay. Have yeah. you been there and come,
1: at least? Well, I was at Vic yeah. Falls, so I was just, yeah. just yeah. you know, across the border a little bit, but. Yeah. Yeah, Zimbabwe. Well, you know, my wife's from Mozambique and she always talked about how beautiful Zimbabwe was. I always heard how beautiful Mozambique is, but I never visited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zimbabwe now, I mean, you know, with uh, what's his name, the crazy Mugabe, president yeah. Mugabe, yeah, it's not so great anymore, but she said at the time it was just a beautiful farmland and... Yeah. Very sure. rich agricultural yep. and great food and just well, it was the the the grain basket. I think you call it the, yeah, like the bread the, basket.
2: Or the bread basket yeah. for the whole of the whole of the southern Africa there yeah. because yeah. their yeah the agricultural results were fantastic there and yeah. that is the time when I visited. It was really a nice country and. Uh, it was shortly, a few years, just after the, the Civil War, when uh, Mugabe uh, came out as victory, you could say, or he was elected or whatever. But uh, he's still in power now. But uh, initially, he, he tried his utmost to keep as many white people as possible there, so they could basically run the show, the agricultural show and yeah. everything. And, uh, but he uh, sort of uh, ripped the whole country down by now and yeah anyway
1: it's, it's horrible what's going on now yeah so so you went to zimbabwe because you're thinking there i can do the falconing yeah there, there was a there was a great uh
2: falconry system installed there by people who sort of well and it's sort of in every country of the world there is some people who are falconers who do it that yeah, uh, there's always a small p- percent of the population who are interested in doing that and and
1: who fly birds and stuff.
2: And how did you, where did it come from? Yeah, from publications, you know, from... from uh, so you saw it in a magazine which, when yeah. you
1: were a child and you were just yeah. like, yep, yeah, that's me.
2: And, no, I thought, and uh, you, you read about, you know, you start reading about different countries, what's going on, and the laws in that country were such that there is like a system you learn
1: from people who are already uh, like master falcon as you right. could say no but, but i mean that i mean the passion for you when yeah. you were a child yeah. how did you how did you think like that i want to do that like what where um, does that come from did someone in your family have falcons or okay, well, a neighbor okay. or something well the first the first memory of uh,
2: uh, you know, around this subject, is when we have to go further back in town. When I was about five or six years old, or something, and I went with my uh, grandfather to uh, Snow White, the movie. Uh-huh. And uh, and I remember that before the actual movie, there was like a like yeah, like a, sh- a short movie that showed. That no, was not a documentary; it was a real movie, and it was about uh, like American Indians, a boy, uh-huh. and who uh, it was a tribal tradition that they were having a dance with uh with a with a suit made from eagle feathers oh, and yeah, stuff yeah. and he as a young boy uh, this is all from memory because it's a long time ago but he uh he had to take an eagle from the nest and then raise it till it was big enough to be killed so that the feathers could be harvested from that eagle oh. so I think it was it's a fiction probably yeah. and uh Anyway, when uh, the boy, so you saw that boy with a young eagle and some moment it was big enough and the eagle was sort of very friendly to him and whatever and then he had to kill the eagle at yeah. some moment and he couldn't do it yeah. and he, he released the eagle actually yeah. which was totally against the laws of the tribe so right. he was expelled you know yeah. and then uh, he, had, he, had to, yeah, he had to leave or something and when he was outside of the, the village the other boys of his age, they sort of caught up with him, and they beat him up a little bit, and they tied to his body this suit of uh, the the eagle feathers and stuff, you know, and that's how they to humiliate kicked, him, kicked him out. Yeah. yeah, and then you see him sort of climbing him out because he, all, all the t- at the time I think you already saw the other eagle, the eagle he released was sort of flying around him or whatever, and I remember you saw him climbing up a mountain or a hill or whatever, till the top, a rocky thing, and then you see him sitting there with that suit, and then he jumps off the off the thing, and while he j- sort of falls down, he sort of, you know. Starts to fly. He, he morphs into an eagle. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last scene of the, of the picture was, uh, of the movie was like, I feel mean, like you see like two eagles sitting together, and one of them was wearing like, the stone of all the tribe members were wearing a sort of a blue stone or something uh, around the neck or a little right. carved thing or whatever and what if the eagles was having that thing around the neck
1: so know, he became an eagle and he fell in an eagle, love too yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
2: and then I was sort of uh, and that made such an impression on me just that that eagle for some reason I don't know what but I remember that
1: you know snow white was probably also nice but that like eagle movie was <laughs> but luckily yeah. you didn't decide <laughs> to become a princess <laughs> that, that would have been a t- totally different life you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah imagine that yeah <laughs> thanks grandfather. father I- <laughs> that's funny yeah, yeah so do you know I read God, where did I read this? I, yeah, I, I was fascinated by American Indians when I was a child as well, and, and you know, affected my whole life in, in a completely different yeah. way. Um, but I remember reading that, you know, when they wore those eagle feather yeah. headdresses, yeah. They, went, they couldn't just, like, shoot an eagle and take the feathers. You know and the same thing with the bear when you see the indians with the bear claw the boys, yeah. You didn't, yeah you know they couldn't just like shoot a shoot a bear the way we would yeah. you know yeah. like protect yourself you know the most yeah. efficient way he had it was ritualistic and i remember i think it was the hopi the, i think it was the hopi in the southwest they would what they would do is they would build um like a little uh a little uh, like a mound out of sticks, yeah, um, and they would put a like a dead bird on top, yeah, or maybe yeah. even tie a live bird on top. And then the the Indian would hide inside yeah. this thing, and there's a hole. Yeah. Have you heard about it? And they would wait for an eagle to see this bird, and and they could see through the sticks. They see the eagle circling, and then when it comes in to attack and take the bird, reach up and catch its talons, yeah. I mean, which, imagine the risk of that. He'd you take yeah. your hand off, you know. And that's yeah. how they had to catch yeah. the eagle. Yeah. Otherwise, you couldn't wear the, the headdress. And with the bears, the grizzly bears, it was... Um, the only you couldn't even if you if you stabbed a grizzly bear with a spear, it would yeah. just turn around and kill you. You know. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. So the only way you could kill a grizzly bear with a spear would be to get the spear under its rib cage. <sighs> so what they would do is they would put some meat or something that would stink and attract the bear, and they hide nearby with a big with a really strong spear, and uh, wait for the the bear to come. Then the bear comes and you make a lot of noise, and a grizzly bear stands, stands up, yeah. and yeah. then you come under it, plant the spear, right, on the ground, and and hold it, so that the weight of the bear coming down on the spear will kill it, and you jump out of the way at the last minute before it falls on top of you, and hope it dies. Ooh, quite something. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. next to that bullfighting is for pussies, yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. I mean, really. Wow, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, anyway, right. uh, when you saw a guy wearing a bear claw necklace, that meant that he had done that. So, like, that is a tough dude yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. overcome Amazing. fear. Yeah. So, you, so okay. Well, the that's, thing is, that was that's just, a great story. I mean, yeah,
2: that was sort of a, an interest in birds of prey. It was not about falconry, but just those eagles. I don't know. they made sort of, a, sort of an impression. Well, and they've got, I
1: mean, with cultures all over the world, they have a mystical power. You know, yeah. they, they, there's a shamanic. A lot of shamanic yep. traditions yep. center on that and, you know, they go to other worlds and they have yep. a yep. Uh, much larger perspective on everything. There's a wisdom associated with them, as you <laughs> said earlier, with, with owls. There's a, a, a lot of wisdom yep. since yep. ancient Greece, at least. That was before
2: we actually did the talk. The owl thing.
1: Oh, the owl thing. That was yep. before I turned on yep. the mics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so it, it's not surprising <laughs> that that would appeal to you. No. Now and then and later on uh, when I
2: was about uh, thirteen I saw another movie uh, this is uh, uh, Ken Loach I think was the director he's a famous uh, british director and he made a movie about a guy from the working class who um, uh, also got an interest in falconry and he took a kestrel from the uh, and, and the movie was called Cass remember that and uh, he had some books or something, and he started training the bird, and just to let him come to him, fly, let, it, let the little kestrel, which is a small type of falcon, let it fly free and let it come to him and stuff. And uh, it's part of the movie. It's not uh, the, the you know the key thing, but the movie was called Cass Kes from Kestrel, and that sort of sparked the, the interest in falconry when I saw that. You could train. Uh, uh yeah a bird or something and that was i thought that was fantastic so from that time on i was uh i was hooked
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah i uh i just read um H is for hawk. I think you and I emailed yeah, about that. Yeah, that. Yeah. That's the okay. first, that's yeah. as, that's the most I've ever really learned about falconry or the relationship with birds. It's yeah. quite interesting.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the way you basically, basically describes how you deal with a bird, how you train a bird and stuff. And
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a book, talking about childhood, there was a book I loved called My Side of the Mountain. And it was... Uh, was about a kid i read all these books about surviving in the wilderness so that was my okay. my thing when i was a kid i just loved all yeah. that yeah. yeah and um you know sometimes it was indian sometimes it was trappers in canada or alaska yeah. and yeah. in this case it was a kid who ran away from home there was some problem with his parents or whatever and he ran away and he went and lived on this mountain by himself and he found a tree that was sort of uh, hollow in the center and he set that up and lived inside the tree and and he found a baby um, falcon okay. and raised the falcon, and then he and the falcon would hunt together. The falcon would like drive you know prey to a rabbits or something. and that was sort of how he survived. So it's interesting because humans, I guess for a very long time, have had this relationship with birds of prey, some of them. Um, which are similar to to dogs in a way, the the hunting assistance kind no, of thing.
2: No, th- yeah, well, it, it's now also this relation is now also recognized by UNESCO. Eh? It's a really a traditional uh, human culture, cultural thing. Right. The uh, sort of the relationship between man and bird of prey, because it's so ancient by now. We don't know exactly how ancient it is because. Yeah, there were there, we were there were no written uh, the yeah. records from that time because but there is proof that it is four thousand years old. Yeah. That's the oldest proof there is. So it must be older than that. But how old? Right.
1: Who knows? Have you been to Mongolia? No,
2: no. But I know what you mean. Have you been there?
1: No, no. I haven't. yeah. yeah
2: there's, there's there's more. There's more local Kyrgyzha, They also do that. You you refer to hunting with, uh, with uh, the with the bear which is the biggest. Uh, uh, golden eagle in yeah. the world, the biggest subspecies of golden eagle. They live there in the Altai mountains and stuff. And they ha- hunt with this golden eagle uh, uh, two hares, uh, foxes, and sometimes even wolves. Yeah, to do that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were you were talking about going to uh, Zimbabwe. Yeah. So you went to Zimbabwe because, like, there I can do the training. There's no waiting list. There's, no, there's, no way, there's, a go, there's a very good system of, yeah. of uh, l- uh, you know, learning how
2: to become a falconer by doing, right. not by seeing another guy doing it. That, that is the way in the Netherlands, yeah. so you learn, we, we, had, we have a system here at the time when I did it, that you had to learn from three experienced guys every year from another. You had to make a whole uh, report from every year and you're the master falconer you uh, were dealing with that year has to, uh, has to uh, support your that yeah you know yes to, to support your application right. and stuff and no. anyway and then there in, in the zimbabwe they had a system like you already trap a bird from the wild oh really and you train it under the supervision of your mentor right and uh, so you, you actually deal with a bird yourself and is it always the same kind of bird no there's many different the the, the thing is uh, many birds are unprotected so you could shoot them even if you wanted to, right. you know, according right. to the, the laws there. So you can also trap one and train it. So a one which would be useful somehow, you know, because not all birds of prey are useful for falconry. But...
1: Uh, and is the training similar? So if you learn with a golden eagle, could you apply that to a falcon or a kestrel? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Training, with training birds
2: animals is grossly the same you know if, if you refer to a dog or a, or a bird or even a horse they're all sort of you know similar lines you could say you know it's basically yeah. You, well basically you could say there's a reward and a
1: punishment system Yeah. in
2: Birch of prey punishment doesn't work Right. so there's only the reward system
1: yeah you know? and I've heard the same thing I have a friend who's a dog trainer he trains for yeah. movies um, I'm okay. going to get him on the podcast soon and we we're talking about that and uh, and he said, "You know people do punishment with dogs it 's terrible mistake yeah it, yeah it should only be positive reinforcement yeah that's all what the, works the all best. the time, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. any negative reinforcement breaks your relationship and your trust which is what you 're trying to develop with this animal, yeah. and so just positive positive positive you know obviously at the right moments, but yeah, yeah. the negative is never a good idea." Yeah. According to him. Yeah. So so birds, it doesn't work. Negative doesn't work at Not all. at all. They but don't get like, like, it. The thing is it. with
2: dogs, because in their uh, system, they have within them, the dogs amongst them, <clears> it's a social animal. Like, birds of prey are usually also not social. Right. Social animals. So they're, they're individual living animals so they only so punishment they don't understand at all right or they understand negative experiences right like if they try to grab an animal which is too big for them right and they get kicked about and whatever and that's a sort of a negative experience so they will probably not try to uh, attack that animal again yeah because
1: it's too big for them they learn that quickly God, but, i just saw a video of that i don't know if you saw this online i think it was a a golden eagle tried to take a, a mountain goat yes I did you see it. that
2: very recently and too. they tumbled down yes, the mountain yes
1: yes i was yeah. amazed because yeah. uh, from what i understand birds bones are hollow aren't they and i would have thought that bird would have been broken into a million well, pieces but I, I, i'm, I'm surprised sur- okay. i think that because i probably saw
2: the same thing yeah and uh, when I, it got sent to me just a few days ago about a week ago or so and it referred to as an uh bold eagle which was it was not because it is a golden eagle, yeah. like you say. It was a golden eagle who's trying to uh, grab a, a gems. We call it a gems, but it's like a mountain uh, sheep, goat. Yeah, it's a, a sheep, uh, yeah or a goat. It, uh, it has two uh, sort of horns which turn backwards at the end. Yeah. two small horns. Anyway, way too heavy for the for the for the bird. But you can uh, see already in the in the little movie that it is, must be a trained bird. So the tra- uh. so the bird must have been in my eyes. You could say as a professional, I've been a professional falconer for seven years, really making money by, with, uh, with my birds. Uh, that, that, that, that was a trained bird. You can also see in the, in the first, uh, or like in, if you look at the whole movie, the bird is flying towards the, the goat and it is filmed from the viewpoint of the goat. The, the, flying, the eagle is flying towards the camera, So that the camera came. was
1: already set up. And so, that, so that,
2: that and, and it was making uh, sounds like the the typical sounds young birds make begging for food. Uh, so this is a trained eagle coming to the fist and they filmed it train, flying to the fist. Of course you don't see the hand yeah. inside. And yeah. then the next moment is you see you're at the distance again yeah. and you see the eagle flying to the goat and grabbing it at the neck. That this animal is way too heavy for a goat. I'm surprised the eagle could have been killed easily yeah. because the the, the goat, goat was stumbling yeah. over and it, it just, the, the eagle didn't, uh, the, the, the goat didn't fall on top of the eagle, but uh, you could hear the eagle also sort of making noises that he f- he, w- he was hurt, I'm sure he was damaged somehow. He was lucky, the eagle, and uh, f- finally he released him. That was like, that, that, that animal, was, it was too big for him. But I think uh, people uh,
1: made the eagle do that hmm. and uh, in an attempt to do, but yeah, that's uh, yeah, Yeah, that's, that's terrible. Did you see yeah. the film, uh, what was it called, Did, where they fly along with the geese? Yeah. The guy that trained the a geese. French, a French Yeah, French guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. what's that called? A flight yeah. or, or bird or... Is something with wings. Or wings, or maybe it was wings. called, yeah. Yeah. yeah. yeah. Exactly, but... That, it's a beautiful yeah. film. Yeah. And the okay. whole thing where he trained the the goose he went out with an ultralight and, and they would yeah. tra- follow yeah. him around and yeah. Yeah. yeah it was really I don't know if that was part of the film or there was another film about the making of the film. I, I, I think I, I saw think, two yeah, of I them. think it's
2: two separate things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Good. But
2: that is the way they did it. They uh, well that is that's another way uh, you that, that's basically not training birds but that's just racing birds from young yeah. that's what you do with uh yeah not chickens bad example they, These were, they, this imprint were yeah, yeah. they imprint on you yeah they imprint on you so they see you or they see themselves as a human so they, and they follow you yeah so if you and even if you step into the <laughs> ultra light and fly they yeah. follow you still <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: funny yeah but yeah. birds afraid don't do that right they don't imprint
2: y- yes they do that oh too. they do because so the so the eagle the eagle you saw with the what we just talked about that's an imprint oh. um, that's, because and they mean by that he's imprinted on man so the eagle thinks he's human you could say yeah and, uh, the and thing he's is, thinking why the hell aren't you guys flying yeah <laughs> that they, they, they don't think like that because they just go by experience you yeah. know and it is like the the geese and and ducks they have like a system like the first thing which moves when they come out of the egg they assume that's the mother and they follow it and they they imprint yeah. On that image they get, and that's also in later life when they're adults, they would also try to make love to the same sort of image, like
1: that would be human then, you know. Ah, Leda and the Swan, another uh, ancient Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Although yeah. That, that, they said that was yeah. Zeus, right? Didn't Zeus took the form of a swan and then uh, had sex with Leda? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. See, these okay. are all tangents. That's why it's called yes. Yes, I get totally <laughs> the picture. <laughs> we get to Zimbabwe and hey, we yeah. keep bouncing off yeah. somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're in Zimbabwe. Then did you trap a bird? Yes, I trapped a bird. That was yeah. It was all very interesting. Because, yes, I, I did trap a bird. So you all have to do that yourself. that part, right? This is like so, a shamanic uh, initiation. It's totally, this is
2: very interesting. Totally, totally. Yeah, I did that. So I I uh, trained and there is certain rules. Like you have to. Uh, so you ma- you make like you make like a little cage, and first uh, you you trap uh, a little bird because you want to have a you want to have a uh, bird of prey who who can hunt little birds. So right? you're
1: trapping your so, bait so, so first. So
2: yeah, you trap a bait, you put it in a little cage. So how do you catch the little bird? Uh, that that step was uh, done for me. Uh, someone catches it and yeah. You, okay. Yeah, yeah, so I got the little bird basically from uh, from some somebody there, and uh, uh, then uh, I used that little bird, put it in a cage, and on the cage I made snares, and the snares they were they had to be produced of natural fiber. So that was one that was mm. a rule. So uh, that was sort of uh that was yeah well, anyway that was just. Sort of a step I had to make, and because before they were all made of nylon, but that was now forbidden in the country when I came there, because you know those things get discarded, yeah. and those nylon they will that will that will last forever, yeah. and they will catching keep on catching animals yeah. forever. So that's really bad. So th- th- those snares had to be of natural fiber, which we made them from some alloy thing. Anyway, we did that, I had the bird, put it there, and yeah, it was all fa- very fascinating. So you sort of, I was hiding in a tree, or behind a tree, don't remember, but you, I saw uh, you just walk around till you see a wild bird of prey. And I saw one, I thought, yeah, this is the, uh, the one I would like to catch. So you put the trap there and you hide yourself, you wait, and sure, within half an hour, he was on the trap, and he, was, he, was, he was on the cage and he was trapped. So I had him, and... Uh, uh, what and kind of bird was it? That was um, uh, a shikra, or a little banded goshawk, ah. it's called. Was, it, was, it was too small. It was because when I had it in my hand, I thought it was another species, because you got many there. And I thought, ah, this is a male of another kind, and I think, that's yeah, it's too small. But yeah, I, knew, I was so proud to have caught it, so, so I I'd bring it home to show it to my mentor at least, and, and then release it again. And, uh, and he said, yeah, nice, now you can train it. They said, yeah, but this is too small. Small birds of prey are far more difficult to successfully train, you could say, because their metabolism is so fast that if you make a small mistake, you, un- you don't give them enough food, they're dead the next day. Really? Yeah, yeah because they, they have, need to eat every day. They need to eat every day, but they need to eat enough. To uh, sustain themselves, and if you mm-hmm. if you make a small mistake, I mean, and of course I knew this from reading books, that from from uh, such a, uh, you know training such a small bird of prey, that is a danger. That is really difficult. This is a difficulty. So I thought, okay, that's why I thought I have to release him. But because you don't
1: want to give them too much food either, because then they won't. You can't train them. They need to be hungry.
2: The, yes, yes. Right. They need to be uh, hungry to a certain state. Uh, so this is a fine balance there. Because if you give him too much food, it's a wild bird, and he has no uh, motivation to catch anything maybe, and or to fly back to you when you call him. So he will just, yeah. you know, uh, you lose him basically. Hmm. Or if you don't give him enough, he's, he doesn't have enough power, or he could even die, or whatever. So uh, with the small birds, this those limits, you all control it by weighing him. You're weighing him constantly mm. to see uh, how, yeah, you know, if shouldn't give him should give should you give him more food or is he already too heavy or is he too low? Right. Those things. Right. And with a small bird of course those limits are yeah. much more smaller than a big bird.
1: So how did you just to go back a second, so yeah. you, you have the cage, you have the, the small bird there, it's making noise, that attracts the the predatory bird, the predatory bird comes in, swoops in, hits the small bird, the snare comes, then he's trapped there. Yeah. Now what do you do? Do you have leather gloves or how do you approach the bird? Um,
2: you, just, you just go over to the bird and basically the, what you just told me about uh, the eagle, the, the, the little Indian hiding yeah. behind uh, the mountain of sticks with eagle, I've, heard, I've read the same story. But the thing is the, the, the most dangerous part of birds of prey are always the feet,
1: yeah. the talons. Right.
2: So if you grab the, the feet of a bird of prey, then you're basically safe.
1: They won't attack you with a the beak?
2: There, some, some would, and some even don't even get the notion of doing that, no. because in their own viewpoint, the Talents, that's their weapons. Right. And that is truly the weapons, because they're very powerful, and that's also how they kill, usually. Except Falcons, for instance. Falcons, they have uh, the, the, the Talents, of the feet of Falcons are not particularly strong, of course, there's exceptions, but usually, and uh, the beak is the, the, the thing. The falcon have a very strong beak. They have a special adaptation in the upper and underbill that they can easily break the neck of a victim. Yeah. That's their adaptation, and that's, therefore they can kill more uh, you know, prey which is considerably larger than themselves because they have this great way of killing yeah.
1: bigger prey. Do eagles have that as well?
2: Uh, all eagles basically
1: kill with the feet as well. Oh, with the feet, yeah. Not, they don't have that, that adaptation. No, no the only
2: bill. falcon. That's a, they also call it the falcon tooth. Ah. You can see it in the up in the uh, in the bill. Huh.
1: And yeah, that is a typical thing of falcons. Wow. Okay, uh, so you took the. It was a, a goshawk, you had a spotted... It
2: was a small, very small sparrowhawk or gas, goshawk, you could say. Yeah, the little banded ga- goshawk is the is one of the names. Shikra is a very popular name because in the same species also occurs like in India and India was also uh, in back in the day a popular bird for uh, Hmm. for hunting purposes and um, anyway I showed him to my mentor so yeah so okay so so he's an
1: African guy your mentor uh, he
2: was an uh, an African teacher he was he was a white guy uh but he was somebody who was uh, his ancestors moved Africa like the ancestors of modern Americans white right. Americans so he America. There a long time, so yeah. he'd been there he was total American and uh, he was a teacher at the time so I stayed uh, on a, on a school with him because it was like a boarding school
1: yeah.
2: and uh, he was a great mentor and um, Ron Hartley was his name <coughs> and uh, he uh, he, uh, when I showed him the bird, he said, no, you can train him, and it's fine. He said, yeah, but it's too small, Ron, this is too, you know, uh, I'm afraid I might, you know, I don't have enough experience. I might kill him by, you no know, I said, yeah, oh, no, go ahead and train him. And so I started training that little yeah. bird. It was a beautiful little thing. How old was it, you know? Uh, he was, uh, I don't know, he was an adult. So he was at least a year old. Those, those little birds, oh. after the
1: year, they're, they're adult. So how, and what's their lifespan?
2: Um, There's a general rule that the the smaller the bird the shorter it lives and uh, so I would assume that yeah five six seven no really something like that maybe eight years
1: ten years would be a lot for a small bird like that right yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's, I guess, it's possible to train an adult. You don't prefer yeah. to work with a small, younger bird? You uh, Usually, what
2: falconers usually do is uh, they take a, a young bird, which has just left the nest, and before it establishes a territory and stuff, and it's still sort of learning and flying around. That's the ideal moment because mm-hmm. it's, very open to learning things and stuff, that's the ideal moment for doing it, but you can also uh, teach an adult for sure, because they have a lot of experience and stuff, but usually it is sort of against, let's say, at least uh, the rules we have in the Netherlands, the Netherlands is an old falconry country, you know, in the the old days, medieval times, it was Dutch falconers who, uh, who trained and maintained the the, the falcons of uh, kings and emperors in Europe. Really? For yeah in those so that days. That was a Dutch
1: yeah. specialization. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Really?
2: We still we still have a fa- uh, falconry museum in Falkenswaard. Falkenswaard. The the, the the name really? already said it. Yeah wow. because back in the day there were the, the, the route of migratory peregrines which was yeah the sort of the high They're the fastest
1: ones, aren't they? Yeah the, the fastest
2: one. Also the most uh, how do you say that the most uh, uh, uh, yeah the bird which was mostly used for falconry yeah and, uh, yeah regarded as the best
1: and they I, I, yeah. I believe they they're quite adaptable as well like i think they live in new york city oh yeah yeah, yeah.
2: they the, also in amsterdam and most uh the the, the, the the peregrine was on the brink of extinction in the 20th the, at the end of the 20th century and then, uh, and they thought that it was going to be extinct. It wouldn't make the 21st century. Really? And then uh, it was uh, thanks to falconers for a big part, but mainly, you know, that because they stopped using... Uh, DDT? Exactly, yeah. and, and things yeah. like that, because that was the reason why it was almost extinct. Right. But then, uh, uh, falconers were have ever, have ever u- were always using the peregrine, and then they, uh, but in America there was a, was a, a guy and also in, uh, in uh, the USA, it was a big guy for the Cornell University. They started the breeding projects with peregrines. All the peregrines which were in the hands of falconers were assembled, put in aviaries. At that time, we're talking about, let's say, the 70s of the 20th century, uh, before it was sort of, they thought that they couldn't breed in captivity. And then they started to have success. It was maybe in the 60s or something, end of the 60s. And in the 70s and the 80s, they started to do this big time. Uh, And they were breeding hundreds of young falcons and releasing them into the wild in various ways.
1: Mm.
2: Also putting young in in nests of... uh, uh, wild peregrines, who were, who were having infertile eggs, thanks to DDT, oh, you know, really? swapping the eggs for young chicks really? and things like wow. that. Now, yeah. oh. uh, foster parenting even, because the peregrines were so much on the decline, there were many uh, places where they have been live, uh, they have been breeding forever, there were, there were no peregrines anymore, so they put young peregrines in the nests of... Uh, uh, species closely related to peregrines and things like that. And the that.
1: parents would raise them.
2: Yeah, parents would raise them. Yeah. Not
1: recognizing yeah. Yeah. them. <laughs> Could you imagine? That's like you, you know, your wife comes home from the hospital with a baby chimpanzee, and you're like, oh, great, looks just like me. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's but funny. the thing is, I, I, I heard about. Uh, uh, I have he, heard from people living in Africa that they adopted a bonobo. Uh-huh. You know, like uh, like sort of as a pet maybe. Yeah. But the bonobo is so much like us. Yeah. That after some time, you see him almost like a human being. It's part yeah. of the family or something. It's, well,
1: this, that happened family. in the yeah. United States too. Some yeah. psychologists in the 70s um, raised... There are two cases I know of where they, they, they wanted to raise a, a chimp. I think it was a chimp and another case was a bonobo uh, at home. Because they, they wanted to understand, like, if, if we raise this animal around humans, will it become human, you know? And they, in one case, they had a little girl about the same age as the, whether I don't remember if it was a chimp yes. or a bonobo. And um, they wanted to see, like, if hanging out with the, the human child would acculturate the, the chimp. Yes. Um, but what happened was the little girl started acting like a chimp. The little girl yeah. was climbing and yeah. scree- shrieking, and yeah. Yeah. there's a yeah. film yeah. about one of the cases called Noam Chimpsky." Yeah, I think it is, because um, they called that's what they called the, the the chimp Noam Chimpsky, which Noam Chomsky is a famous linguist, and oh, so they were right. sort of making a joke about his name. Um, yeah anyway, so uh, let's get back to Zimbabwe I'm so fascinated by this, but there's so many yeah. interesting things yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of sparking <laughs> off of this yeah. so we're in Zimbabwe you've got your mentor yeah. uh, you've got your bird yeah. and so you start training did did you kill the bird? Eventually, yeah. (laughs) Eventually, the bird died. Yeah, I was (laughs) afraid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it sounds like the the mentor was like, yeah, whatever. You know, there are a lot of birds, right? You know, we can sort of, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but the thing is, okay, I was with the mentor. He was, and it was all. I spent some time with him. I stayed, you know, I think three and a half months in total there. Yeah. And uh, after after staying with him for a month or so, I travelled, stayed with another guy, and. and at some moment, uh, the bird uh, just uh, got—he didn't get enough nutrition at some moment. By because I was—I was at that time I was a- actually hunting him, you know, tr- tr- uh, catching uh, wild uh, little wild birds with him and stuff. And uh, um, if I remember correctly, because this is like a long time ago, I was 20, so that's 30 years ago. But. Uh, uh, he was eating some wild, some wild birds, mm. and uh, and I was making a, a misjudgment apparently, because it is always like you sort of take into account how much energy he spends by uh, flying hunting, and then how much you give him, right. and whatever you give him, uh, uh, so what the kind of meat you give him, how nutritious how nutritious is it? Because there is a difference in like let's say uh, beef, mm-hmm. or uh, you know chicken, or, or that is all different values. Yeah. And you sort of uh, develop a feeling for it, that you sort of know, okay, well he spent so much time now, the temperature is, is very, will be very low the coming night, so you have to give him extra. And if, if there's like fatty tissue in there, sort of, that is very rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, at some moment you develop sort of a feeling for how much to give him and uh, uh, i made a mistake at some moment i think i thought that the, the birds he was eating or the little bird he was eating that it was more nutritious than it actually was right so the next morning or maybe it was very cold at night because in the uh, in uh, time in zimbabwe when it's summer here it's winter there in the southern hemisphere it's very cold at night it can be can be freezing literally yeah so anyway I, I don't know what happened, but I, I noticed the next day he was in an under condition, He was too low, so you can f- you start feeding him immediately and things. And uh, then he went. He went to uh, to. Uh, yeah, w- I was struggling with him for a few more days after that, but he probably, you know, some internal bacteria or parasite got the upper hand or whatever, and he eventually died. That's mm. the thing. And that is, yeah, that was exactly what I was afraid for. That because out of uh being inexperienced you make a small mistake like that i already learned from this from books and that is exactly what happened so yeah that was a that was a sad thing It was a really it was a really sad thing
1: it's like learning to drive with a, a lamborghini or something yeah it's uh, yeah you know better in a ford at the beginning you work your way up yeah yeah well, so you said it was a sad thing. Do you feel an emotional connection with these birds? Do you develop that kind uh, yeah, of? Yeah, of course, because for you it is uh, such an
2: uh, important thing. I mean, I was I was living years towards that moment of being able to fly and train yeah. your own birds. You yeah. know. So and then when I mean, it finally happens and it is, yeah, that was that was all great and fantastic. So you have an emotional attachment to the bird. I mean. The bird probably doesn't feel you in the same way, yeah. but you have that, yeah. So when when it fails, and you also, yeah, you feel guilty because, you know, my initial plan was, uh, after my time being spent there, I would feed, it, fed him up. And release him to the wild. That was my initial plan. Right. And that was, and not so long before, I had to go back. That failed. The bird died. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was really sad. That was sort of felt like a complete failure. And and you feel guilty and whatnot, you know. So uh, yeah, that was that is not a nice thing. Yeah. But I have to say, uh, looking uh, back and uh, uh, you know, ha- having animals—I've always had animals in my life—but that is an intrinsic part of having animals. Always, that animals die, because we, as yeah, we, we are mammals who live uh, for a considerable amount of years, usually. Yeah. So uh, last week, my dog died. He was my best friend for the last couple of years, and uh, yeah, that is also very hard on you, you know. And it's always very. Nasty when animals uh, die on you. And,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, I, I read somewhere I, I don't remember where it was but someone said that that the That the greatest gift that dogs give us is Learning how to die properly is that we see how to die you know, because as you say, dog. You know, dogs live, what, 10, 15 years, you know, something like that. And yep. So if you're going to have dogs in your life, you're going to watch a bunch of people, yep. not people, the beings that yes. you love. Yes. You're going to see them yeah. from when they're little puppies yeah. jumping around, getting old and dying. You're going to watch it happen again yes. and again and yes. again. In yeah. the, and gradually it's happening with you as well. And so it's like a lesson. We just watch it and we try to learn. Yeah.
2: It's, yeah, it's,
1: yeah. But it hurts, you're very right. Very true, very true because yep. it's so emotional yeah, there are no words that, that, yep. that yep. contaminate the relationship it's just yep. pure emotion yeah yep. yep. yeah yeah it's it's hard I, I've told this story before on this podcast but uh, I've had, my father loves his dog and uh, it's a golden retriever and uh, a few years ago they left the dog in the backyard and uh, it was the 4th of July so they went out to see fireworks there was a party or something when they came home the dog was gone apparently the, the explosion scared the dog and she jumped over the fence and ran away so uh, they were—they put up signs everywhere and they were very afraid and uh, finally the shelter called and oh, I think we have your dog and so my father and my sister went down to the shelter and oh, there's, oh they're so happy and they take the dog back home and they're in the back yard and they're throwing the ball and the dog's running and everyone's happy and my sister's boyfriend came home and he looked out the window and he said to my mother whose dog are they playing with and she said oh that's Tess. that's that's frank's dog and he said that's that's not his dog (laughs) <laughs> they got the wrong dog really? but, they, <laughs> but they didn't notice <laughs> because it was a golden retriever they all look more or less the same you know and so i think about this story a lot because you know the nature of love like you were saying you know you have this relationship with the bird yeah. Yeah. but the bird doesn't really know. i mean maybe yeah. they recognize you yeah. i guess yeah. like that's the guy who feeds me yes they recognize you but yeah. like to what they're feeling like who knows yeah. what they're feeling yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just like, when that happened, it's like, it's so funny, but it's also like, what is the love that we have for animals? Because, you know, I mean, my father's old, so, you know, he's a special case, but my sister was there too. She's not old. If they were feeling love for that dog. Yeah, yeah. But it was the wrong dog. (laughs) But it was real love, I guess. Yes, Yes, I mean, I I don't know. I'm confused by it. But uh, our relationships with animals are very interesting because it's so much coming out of us. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And in the case no. of a dog, I mean, yes. the dog does know you, and I, I um, believe there is affection coming from oh, yeah. the dog.
2: Yeah, that has been proven too. Eh? Yeah, also with brain uh, brain scans and, scans and stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, they see you, yeah. even a photo of you, and they respond yeah. differently. Yeah. Yeah. But with wild animals like yeah. birds, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how we can imagine what they feel. It's, I mean, do you do you ever dream that you're a bird? Do you fly in your dreams? Um, yeah, I, I I have done so, but generally.
2: I don't, I only r- remember flashes of dreams when you just wake up and stuff and sort of the, when you try to, you, you sort of realize, oh, it was a nice dream and you try to h- hang on to it and it sort of glips through your fingers, yeah. like sand or something and uh, yeah. so I don't, but I, I, I have memories of, of, of flying, yes. Have
1: you done other flying things like paragliding or wing, well, wing suits? Yeah, well, to... once on a
2: on a cable behind the, a little boat, you know, you go. Oh, para sailing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. para
1: sailing. Yeah, yeah. that's. That, I did paragliding. Yeah. I jumped off the mountain in oh, India yeah. uh, ten times. Yeah, it, that's interesting. It's, I believe that. And it's that, quiet. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. whoosh, it's just the air. It's yeah. there's no yeah. motor or anything. It's uh yeah that was a very interesting course. I did a little course. I met a German guy. This was in Goa. I met this German guy Uwe, who um, you know people who live there long term they find a way to make some make some money, and they teach something yoga classes or whatever. And Uwe uh, had a couple of parachutes and he taught um, uh, paragliding and. But it was very minimal, is very you know I think I paid $100 dollars for the whole for 10 flights, uh, which includes one day of theory and then you know 10, 10 <laughs> oh, yeah. days and you, you walk up this hill that was maybe, I don't know how many, um, how many meters, but uh, maybe I don't know two, 300 meters. and um, it take, took about an hour to walk up the trail and then you un- it's a backpack you know and you unpack everything so the first day the first day is on the beach and you just i remember that he had a little booklet he gave us and that talks about different types of clouds and you know whatever yeah, yeah. and i remember there's one type of cloud that will suck you up into the cloud, that terrified me <laughs> and and the the problem there is when you're in the cloud you don't know what is up or down Ooh. so you're just in white whiteness you're whited out and there's no sense of what's up or down so what you need to do is you grab the outside strands of the parachute and you pull them in so you partially collapse the parachute and you fall fall fall fall fall fall, until you're out of the cloud and then you let go and hope that it catches but it might not so you do not want to get caught in that cloud um, but uh, yeah and then, and then we went on the beach and you just sort of lay the thing out and you practice uh, inflating it and, and most important dropping it you have to do this thing where you turn and you drop it uh, quickly because when you land if you get caught in the wind and you don't properly collapse the chute then you get dragged off somewhere okay. Yeah, and then that was it and then we went up on the top but it was strange because um, so
2: this was more like a parachute or like a delta wing
1: it's a parachute, parachute. Yeah. yeah but they're they're, par- they're parachutes for going forward you know they so you have steering like a mattress yeah yeah so you're falling the whole time but you're moving forward also yeah. and it's a wing parachute and uh yeah so i was there it was me and one other guy this big scottish guy and we went up on the mountain and um Uwe gave us a little headset, like a little uh, battery thing on the belt, and then you have a earphone, and so he can tell you, and what we did was, so the other guy went first, (laughs) there was the moment where he said, okay, who's going first, and we looked at each other like, please, please, you, and so the other guy said, yeah, I'll go, okay, good, you go first, so You just you have the the chute laid out on the ground and you're hooked in, and then you sort of you pull it because there's a constant wind coming and you pull it and it inflates and then you turn and just step step step step and you're off. So you sort of leave the ground before you run off the edge of the cliff, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. And then the way he set it up, we sailed out over the Indian Ocean. And, you know, for, I don't know, a couple of minutes, straight straight over the ocean, and then he told the guy to turn to the left, and he turns and he comes back into this valley where there was a stream that came down, and then there's a little lake and then there was the beach and then the ocean right so he, he turned he came back into this valley and then the whole time you're descending right and so uve's watching how fast you know based on the guy's weight and the, the capacity of the chute and i don't know the temperature of the air or whatever and that's why he's telling him where to turn and when to do this and then turn again and he turns back and now he's headed back toward the ocean and then you go over the, the lake and now you turn again and then you sort of go along the beach and land there right And the guy, and we see he drops the chute, and everything's great, and oh, great, successful. So now it's my turn. Okay, so do the same thing. Turn, it's a really hot day turn the chute goes up run run run okay da da da, and i go up and then i get into the harness you know and then you sort of grab the the two um the two handles that are steering and i'm sitting in the harness and i'm going out over the indian ocean and the, pff, the wind is in my hair and i just feel it and it's incredible and i'm going over the ocean holy shit holy shit And I'm waiting for him to tell me when to turn, and when to do things, and he's not saying anything at all, and it's like, okay, I'm just going, oh, this is amazing, and still, like, I don't know, it feels like maybe this is kind of too long, what's going on, and then I hear, and I'm starting to listen, like, why, what's going on, and I hear this very distant screaming. And I turn and look and I see Uve jumping up and down, <laughs> waving his arms, because the earplug had fallen out of my ear, <laughs> and I'm just sailing out over the Indian Ocean. And Uve's like, "Fuck, guy, you he can't hear me," because apparently he told me to turn, and I was like, "Yeah, whatever." So that was my first flight. and I was like, "Oh shit, I'm gonna die." Better so turn. <laughs> yeah, time to turn. So I just—it I, was just like, you know, now or never, right? I need to to step up here right so I turned and I just followed the same route that the other guy had taken and sort of you know instinctively with a sense of how fast I'm dropping vertically and how far I need to go and so I figured out like more or less here's where I need to turn because if you overshoot the beach then you're in the ocean again if you undershoot it you're in the lake so you have to come down on one side of the beach and then turn and go along it so there's not a lot of leeway you know and the funniest thing was, like, okay, I, I maneuvered, did other things, and then as I was coming into the beach, I was like, wow, I'm gonna, this is actually going to work. I've got enough beach here, I'm coming down, and as I'm, like, maybe five, four meters above the beach, this rabid dog comes out. And he's like, I'm going gonna, gonna to survive, and I'm going to land in the mouth of a rabid, fucking, snarling Indian dog. But I landed, turned, dropped it, and I was like, holy shit, my knees were shaking, everything, and the dog ran away at the last minute, and then some guy immediately was trying to sell me water or coconuts or something, and I was like... (laughs) yeah what a trip yeah that was my first uh, flight but I'd recommend it not with Uve, maybe <laughs> <laughs> in India <laughs> maybe that's not, it's economical but high maybe risk
2: maybe he's now got a system of airplug or something you know more yeah maybe uh, he probably tapes
1: it in a little better <laughs> after that yeah yeah that wouldn't be good for his reputation to just watch me sail out over the ocean oh yeah so uh okay where are we we're in zimbabwe so you finished your training you got is the license international then you can come back to holland with your Uh,
2: no it's not yeah no it's not well the thing is i already did all all the thing i had to do in the netherlands i was just. You know, I was waiting on, uh, for the guys to die till to, to I get my, got my license. Oh,
1: you're so, already done the educational part. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, so I, I was sort of ready, but
2: y- you're not allowed to have anything in the Netherlands. So that's what the reason why I went to Africa. All ah, right. The thing is, so I had a great time there. You know, two two years later, I went again, and then I was now, I had a first the C grade from that experience with the bird. So then uh, I could step up and actually train a falcon. You know, ah. So I trained a Lennar falcon there. In Zimbabwe L- again? In Zimbabwe, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, I had a great time. I stayed with, uh, with a surgeon, uh, Arthur Dunkley was his name. And uh, from that I made a trip down south in Zimbabwe to stay with Ron Hartley, which I just mentioned. Anyway, was, I had a great time. I, I, spent, I went uh, three times, basically for falconry reasons, to Africa, to learn there and practice. And yeah, yeah it, was a re- it was a really great time. Uh, I had I met a guy there who also. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> it was really fantastic. The thing why we got there was because while being there, I also uh, met people who were smoking cannabis. Ah. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I was I was. There we're back to releases. cannabis, ladies and that's gentlemen. It. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So okay. So that's where you first tried cannabis. Yeah. In Zimbabwe. The thing is, in the culture there, uh, they smoke it pure. Yeah. You know? Right.
2: And that was the big difference with the Netherlands. Yeah. And, uh, then, uh, um, you know, um, I was, you know, when you stay, like we're talking now and somebody's smoking cannabis and you, you talk a little bit about it and, uh, said, yeah, smoking pure is no tobacco and I said, yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with smoking. It's not dangerous, not addictive really, you know? So, uh, I said, well, you want to try, you know, and I said, well, why the hell not, you know? So. Uh, I tried it, and uh, after a few days of trying, I actually had an effect. Right. That is something which I still don't have an explanation for. Yeah. Which is why it doesn't work with, uh, with the uninitiated. Yeah. Uh, for s- a few times. Yeah. You usually.
1: need to learn to notice yeah. that you're high. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a it's, it's a funny thing. I I uh, yeah. My wife had never smoked. Cannabis until she met me, and she was 39, I think, and she wanted to try it. I was growing some weed, and probably your. I actually it was your weed. I was growing AK47 when okay. when we came to uh, Barcelona, and uh, yeah, and she was, you know, I, I've always been very interested in the plants. I, I think I told you I had a column in canyamo magazine for years. I, I had a page I that didn't I, them, yeah, every every month I had a page. I could write anything I wanted and. Um, yeah, that's how I know uh, Rick Doblin and Maps and all those because I was very interested in altered states of consciousness. Yeah, me too. I, I
2: was I was a member of Maps for for years. Yeah,
1: so. yeah. Um, so she was, you know, like I, I she was interested in an intellectual level and a yeah. psychopharmacological level, and um, but yeah, like I tried to, you know, get her high, and she was just like, yeah, I don't know, I don't feel it, and you know, the rest of us were all stoned out of our minds, and then finally one day. Uh, probably the third or fourth time she was trying to say that she didn't feel anything, but she couldn't stop laughing long enough to say she wasn't feeling anything. You know, okay. and, then, and then it's like, Cassie, do you under, do you see that you're laughing so hard you can't finish that sentence?" And she's like, "But I still don't feel it." Like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you what the to, rest of us do <laughs> recognize that you're yeah. officially I now. You are feeling <laughs> it. You just don't know you're feeling it yeah. somehow. Yeah. yeah. yeah. yeah. yeah. So, was it uh, Durban poison? Was that your first experience?
2: No, uh, no. I think it may have been a local thing, but uh, I. What, what the best thing around there was, was uh, Malawi gold. Yeah.
1: Was the best. And is that a, a hybrid or a sativa?
2: It's a sativa. They, you, they only have sativas there. Yeah.
1: Down in South Africa. And they, uh,
2: yeah, they are grown locally, so they're sort of adapted to the local circumstances and stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, so that's all very—it's all nice wheat. One is stronger than the other. Malawi gold is the strongest there around there. So that was also the local wheat was really quite cheap to buy, but the Malawi gold was priced higher. So that you had to actually—it was more expensive. I remember that, and it was also uh, being smuggled from Malawi to the countries around there in uh, banana leaves, and it was sort of—you know—it was sort of. Yeah, how do you say it? It was a banana leaf and the, the wheat was inside there and it was uh f- f- rolled in and then that was uh, uh like uh, another plant, viber was was uh, tied around it. Yeah. So that's how it looked like and uh so like tie stick or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I never I never actually tried th- tie stick but I think it's sort of uh the same.
1: Was existence. it the uh, Sensamia or with seeds? No, it was with yeah, seeds.
2: Because yeah. those were one of the the seeds I took with me. Ah.
1: And, that, and that was, that's how, that's what sparked
2: the existence of uh, the seed company, could say eventually, ah. you know, but at least my, uh, I tried, I brought the seeds back home, you know, from really the, the great things I smoked there. And uh, I immediately when I came home, I started growing the, the seeds out and, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been have been growing plants ever since.
1: So, yeah. were you? Uh, I, did you bring the seeds and grow the plants because you were really into the experience of being high at that point, yeah, or just, just you liked the plants?
2: First, you know, I, I, I brought some of the the the, the, the, the, the, let's say the Malawi wheat back home. There were seeds in there, and uh, that just, I think that was the first year. And then uh, I just put some seeds in earth to see what would happen. Yeah. And I was smoking it and they actually sprouted and plants came out from it and, and uh yeah. and I started to you know to grow the plants on the balcony and
1: It's yeah. a really fun plant to grow. I, it's I a beautiful plant. I don't even smoke yeah. much anymore. Yeah. I I rarely smoke, but I just love growing it. I love to watch it change. I love you come home every day. It's different, yeah. you know, when yeah. it's really growing, it, you can see like, oh, there's a new new level yeah. and then when it starts budding, you know, the, the I just I really enjoy yeah. the process of having the plant around, the smells and the Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful plant. It's so
2: I can maybe I can even show you some plants maybe can go to a plot not so very far from here yeah
1: Yeah. it's it's I mean we always grew plants I mean I've been growing your plants for yeah 15 years or something on the terrace and uh, weed and jasmine and the the at night the smell of the the two that intermingle and come into the apartment it's just the sexiest most beautiful aroma imaginable yeah so uh okay so then you you got into the the seed bank yeah first in, in growing plants we're just receiving some uh some, ah, some oh shrimp crackers is it? yeah how do you call them shrimp crackers i think oh. so yeah yeah it's a very dutch thing she's cooking them yeah wow. oh, nice um, so you got, so, so the whole thing came together. So the falcon, I, I thought the falconing was sort of something completely separate in your life. But it's actually integrated. It's interesting. Totally. Yeah. yeah nice. Uh, the thing is, I liked to, I discovered that smoking marijuana was fun. Came back
2: uh, to the Netherlands. I had, I brought a little bit with me with some seeds in it, which I tried, came out. But the thing is, I remember uh, I went to the university library to find out what marijuana did to your body, you know? How dangerous would it be? Right. And then uh, much to my amazement, because if it would be really very bad then I would stop doing it, you know? But uh, then I I, I was reading things like, uh, I remember in 1973 a whole American plane full of uh, doctors and experts and scientists went, was flown over to Jamaica and uh investigating older people who have been smoking weed all their life and they were once and for all sort of trying to make clear how bad was it for you you know to see what was wrong with all those people all the conditions they had
1: and i couldn't find
2: nothing in those people
1: nothing they actually have lower rates of lung disease than people who smoke nothing yeah yeah, yep. do you, do you know Andrew Weil? Have you ever read his work? Yep, yep. He he was the first guest I had on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's he's a friend for a long time now. Mm. Yeah, I love I really love him because he's one of the very few doctors back in the '70s and '80s who was saying that, and he would never back down. He never changed his opinion because he knew the science. And yep. and it's yep. like, come on, it's this stuff is not dangerous. Yep. You know, this is all bullshit propaganda. And now, finally, finally, you know, 30 years, 40 years later, medical community is starting to recognize, just beginning to recognize what's been obvious for so long. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, listen, I, we've been talking for, uh, what, uh, an hour and a half now. And I know you have someone coming yeah. at 2 o'clock or something, so um, I don't want to take up your whole day here. The thing is, my dad is already here, because he, he came already last night, so he ah, stayed here. Ah, okay.
2: And, uh, um, but, yeah, the thing is, I have to, uh, t- tomorrow we move to Spain for a fair.
1: Oh, you're going to Spain, oh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so when you said you were going to Spain, and I said, hey, maybe... maybe. I'm
1: going tomorrow, yeah.
2: But, yeah, we too. We're going to Irun, you're going to Barcelona probably.
1: Yeah, I'm flying into Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Wim Hof is going also. Everyone's going to Spain. Really? Yeah, yeah. Why is he going? He just bought a house in Huesca in the uh, Pyrenees. Okay. And uh, we're going to go see him uh, this weekend, I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, So, I, but I want a chance to see the birds, so I don't want to talk yeah. too long and yeah. miss my chance to see no, the birds. let's do that. So, uh, I guess I'll say thank you, and uh, this has been wonderful. Is there mm, dot com. um is Simon's company, and I can vouch for the quality of the seeds, of course. Do you, you sell into the U.S. or just within Europe, or how does that work? Um,
2: they can contact us if they're interested. Uh, we don't uh, send to the U.S. So it's not possible, despite the fact that there is not so many states or whatever where yeah. recreation. And there's or no or THC uh, in medical. seeds. Yeah. I, I don't no, know. there's not. No, no. But still, it's in many countries there is a we can send seeds to many countries yeah. because there is no THC in there because it's not drug in itself. Right. And in many countries, it's not allowed to grow the plants. That's a different matter. But in the U.S., uh, they they consider the marijuana plants, you know, as a total thing of the devil or something, <laughs> and everything of the plant is not allowed, know, and not incredible. even hemp is allowed, and come on, you know, hemp has been
1: yeah. used. It, marijuana
2: is probably the first one
1: being cultivated by, by humans, yeah, and the Bill of Rights is printed on hemp paper. I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, where back in the colonial days, I think it was one of every 20 acres had to be hemp. It was required by the government that you had to dedicate part of your farm to hemp because it was so important for sailing Uh, ships and all that. And I remember near where I grew up, there was Hempfield Township. Hempfield Township. I never thought of it until I was, you know, smoking weed. I was like, wait a minute. Hempfield? Yeah. Hempfield? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. fields of hemp. Yeah. Have you ever read a book called um, Opiates for the Masses, I think it's called? No. It's about um, opium poppies and how, like, their opium poppies are the the ones that people are growing in their garden have opium in them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And so this this, uh, book is all about the history of opium poppies and, you know, how in Turkey, for example, they take the seeds from the opium poppies and they make a tea that's served at funerals because it takes away sadness. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it must be a very low dose, but it relieves sadness. And so it's a traditional um, tea that's served at Turkish funerals, apparently. Anyway, the guy who wrote this book uh, is American, and he sort of got into the fact that the laws around it are really fucked up, as you say with, you know, like the whole seed thing. So here's the deal. All these old ladies are growing opium poppies. You know, they're all over the place. Yes, they're everywhere. It's not illegal, yeah. Yeah. unless you know that there's opium in them. If you know there's opium in them, then it's illegal. If you know? If you know. Not if you do something with it. <laughs> no. As long as you're intentionally cultivating seeds, right. Right. you know, be, yeah. that have opium in them. Yeah. Right. So if, like, so this guy, for example, he, he was very careful. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't, you know, making heroin. You have to have a lot. To, you have to yeah. have fields of yeah. it to yeah. make yeah. heroin. Yeah. Yeah. So he just had some in his yard, but because he wrote this book and he knew, ah. then it was illegal. And they started harassing him. And I, I, I don't remember the story if he committed suicide or was really? it. Yeah, it was a really sad, fucked up thing, but typical of the American yeah, government, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. I didn't, yeah yeah anyway um okay so serious seeds are they available in the states from seed companies the, they I mean, are from... available
2: but people especially americans because i just got a call from america from a guy who was visiting portland and uh, an old friend of mine and he said hey i'm walking into a dispensary here and i see uh, all uh, serious seeds here ak-47 and cali mist and yeah. they're all being sold here and uh, do you have a way of uh, you know de- you know selling them to dispensary and i said no and I said, I said, they're also not in original packaging, they're in little baggy stuff. Is ah, it so now. they're
1: just stealing your brand. This is happening all the time, all the time. Yeah. yeah. So. Because it's unregulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah. yeah. yeah. That's yeah. All right, good well, things. for those of you who are not living in a fascist dictatorship, uh, <laughs> I can tell you Kali Mist, that's K A L I if you can get the real thing from SeriousSeeds.com is my favorite plant. We've, we, since Mine we too. started. Really? Yeah. No, yeah. really?
2: And my girlfriend too. You saw her. yeah. It's a, it's a women, it's a women plant.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, you know, and that's why I was interested in it initially and that's why my wife was interested. It, it's, you know, it helps with menstrual cramps and yeah. the mood changes and all the sort of things that are associated with, um, you know, women's hormonal stuff. But I just find it to be the perfect uh high it's just it's it's not like it doesn't make me nervous and giddy and like weird it but it makes me feel happy and social and relaxed and yeah. And also physical, like it makes me want to exercise and like do some push-ups and stretch. Yeah. It's just yeah. like it just makes everything feel better, and but not debilitating in no. any way. No,
2: because you you're very, you're very clear. Your mind is very yeah, clear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's really about the high. It's
1: that's, almost that's like an good answer. cocaine. You know, if cause I, I way, really yeah. don't like cocaine. No, neither. <laughs> um, yeah. But but the the best aspect of cocaine is that sort of energizing and clarifying. You know. And I get that with the Cali Mess. So. I love
2: go hiking at uh, the Cali Mess. Yeah, you
1: know? yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I know
2: it's mine. And I uh, know, like Rob Clark, he says right. it's the best to smoke here. Really? Cali Mess. Yeah, I'd say he think it's the best thing which came out of the Netherlands. That's Do what you know said. how I
1: met Rob Clark? Yeah, you Do you know that me. story? I told you the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast. I'll tell the story very quickly. Rob Clark, so I'm, I'm in Hanoi with Casilda. And we were trying to get some weed because we were going to go on a cruise in Howlong Bay the next day. And I knew an American guy who lived there. And so he said, I know this bartender and maybe he can get some Lao shitty weed. The worst weed ever is like the kind of weed I used to get in high school with like dirt and stems and stones. and you know. But uh, so he thought he could maybe find some and but this guy was having a fight with his wife so we had dinner with them but then after dinner we just didn't want to hang out with them anymore because it was the bad energy so he he was going to the bar they were gonna go to the bar and I said look you go ahead we're gonna just take a walk around and you know see you on the boat tomorrow maybe if you get it great if not whatever so we're walking around and we walk by this Italian restaurant and there's this guy sitting there eating some pasta and he's got a beautiful batik shirt and as we walk past I said nice shirt and he said thanks my African girlfriend made it for me and I said oh she's my girlfriend's African oh what part and blah blah, blah. Yeah. so we, he says you want to join me have some wine I said, oh, okay so we sit down with this guy and he says uh, it, you know after a while he says to me so what do you do in Spain and I thought you know, here I am in, in Vietnam, I could just tell this guy the truth, you know, normally I would say you know, whatever, I mean I did different things, you know, this, I would never lead with I grow weed, you know yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, yeah, I grow some weed, and he's like, oh, how did you learn to, to grow, I said, yeah, this guy in San Francisco, and I read some books who's the book, uh, there's a famous book I read, yeah, I don't remember, everyone yeah. reads, and uh, he said, you ever read anything by a guy named Rob Clark i said no that thing doesn't ring a bell he's yeah okay whatever (laughs) so we kept talking and i mentioned rick doblin or you know stanley like people i know in the world of sort of intellectual drug people and so i guess at that point he he figured i wasn't a dea agent or anything and uh that's when he told me that he was rob clark the author of the the encyclopedia of hashish and and yeah. another yeah. book that based on his uh, master's thesis i think yeah. about yeah. cultivating
2: his, his first
1: marijuana yeah. cultivation yeah. i think it's called uh, shit, i don't remember the actual title of it
2: it's, i think it's the best book about un- understanding the plant of cannabis uh. Uh, i have to look at my bookshelf. Yeah. man. Uh, so
1: he's a world good. a world-renowned expert yeah. on marijuana yeah, totally. and yeah. he said to yeah. me like i said that's so funny because we were just going to go to this bar and and he said, oh, you want? To... I've got a like a golf ball-sized piece of Nepali hash back in my room. I was just going to flush down the toilet <laughs> because I have to go to Holland in the morning to judge the cannabis cup. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so he went back to his room and he, he gave us this... small falcon. So. Uh, a falcon flying yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. And he gave us the, the, the hash and we showed up on the boat the next day like heroes. We were like... Uh, probably the only people in the entire country who had the hash (laughs) great (laughs) it was great anyway so that's my Rob Clark story who we both know who lives here right is he still here or he's
2: he's, uh, partially here but most of the time he's not here he's very active in uh, he wrote uh, he wrote another book after that in
1: Japan right in
2: uh, in Turkey he spends a lot of time in Turkey uh, going for because in Turkey they also have this uh, cultural uh, he's really interested in the, the uh, cultural The traditions.
1: anthropology around yes, it. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah.
2: About the plant cannabis. And in Turkey, they used to make, uh, they used to use a lot of the plant fiber, the hemp fiber, for carpets and, and rope and things. But that is disappearing quickly. So he's trying to all, yeah, you know... Uh, to
1: preserve it, yeah. Preserve it yeah. in
2: writing and yeah. pictures and whatever. And he's buying a lot of carpets there. And, uh... He was. He stayed with me about a year ago, and he made a whole map of Turkey. And I remember, I still have the. I still have the map because he gave it to me. When afterwards he said, and he was dyeing different colors the provinces of Turkey, and there was a, like a, what had a high a likelihood of uh, people growing using cannabis there or or not. And then, and then later he visited those mm. provinces, and he found a lot of. Uh, uh, Turkish people indigenous communities that you know who were still uh, using carpets and things and, and also sometimes growing plants yeah I showed me some pics of plants there and stuff On yeah. small pl- pl- plots
1: all right let's yeah. let's let's wrap this up yeah. people are making food and things so <laughs> thank you very much for doing this and thanks for <laughs> having welcome. me out here I mean this no, is great no you're welcome yeah it's, it's uh, so beautiful uh, out here it's
0: food for everybody
1: also for you, you yeah. what's that
0: I have food also for you oh
1: thank you thank <laughs> you, so
0: I think you
1: All right. We will. We're done. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more, or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them, everything we've got in stock. is from Shore Design t-shirts in Thailand and you can check out their web page as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N dot com She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear which is called Smoke Alarm and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett.
0: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I'm thinking about a reputation